I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we change our perspective from good versus evil, the way of the tree of death, to discover the things of the tree of life. This week we begin a new Parsha in the one-year cycle. If you're following along in the one-year cycle, the last Parsha took five weeks as we're going through it now. This new Parsha will also take five weeks for us to get fully through. This Parsha won't end until Genesis 22, and we are just now in Genesis 18. So it's going to take another five weeks. We're, we're still continuing this long, slow track. And as we enter this new Parsha in the one-year cycle, we'll actually find that the, the topics under discussion, they shift slightly once more. We're going to get some more comparisons and con- contrasting contained within the stories that are upcoming. For the past five weeks, we've been going over the story of Abraham, this, this pagan Babylonian whom God called to serve him. And the story begins the biblical exploration of topics such as dedication and discipleship, righteousness and faith, covenant and signs of the covenant, promise and fulfillment, and and way more. This new Parsha continues continues in this in that it introduces other topics, but it actually begins to take some of those previous topics and break them down and provide a much clearer picture as we continue through the narrative foundation for these ideas. Because Genesis, it, it truly is a book of beginnings. When we consider this, we tend to think of beginnings to refer to the beginning of the earth or the beginning of Israel or the beginning of the seed of Abraham and so on and so forth, the beginning of the covenants. But in reality, every topic that we will encounter through the remainder of Scripture is introduced in Genesis, every single one of them. And that's my goal as we go through this, is to identify these topics as they are introduced to us and then to discover from this the things of life that are contained in the whole of Scripture that are started here. Because in Deuteronomy 30:19 we read, I have called the heavens and the earth as witnesses today against you. I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore you shall choose life so that you live, both you and your seed. The purpose of the Torah is to provide that contrast for us, life versus death, blessing versus curse, from God's perspective. That's what the Torah defines, and it's what Yeshua embodied and he modeled for us. It was these stories right here that Paul, Peter, John, James, Luke, and every author of the New Testament uses to prove their points in the gospel, to describe the proper way of living in the light of Messiah. If they can look back here and they can see the model for the proper messianic existence, then so too can we. And so that's what we're doing. We're coming here and we are looking and trying to understand these stories as they were understood by the New Testament authors, as well as to pull out those things of life and to begin to to shift our perspective on that. If we don't understand these stories, we won't know how to relate these stories to the rest of the Bible. 
They become standalone incidences that mean absolutely nothing to us. And we won't understand how they relate to Yeshua. And when we miss those things, when we miss how it is that these stories relate to the rest of Scripture, to our own lives, to the life of Yeshua, and so forth, we miss a whole world of understanding, of just amazing ideas and thoughts that are being presented for us through this story. This week we're in Genesis 18, and there is a topic contained in this chapter I've never seen or heard anyone else speak of before. But as I've considered it more and more, as I've studied it and looked into it and really thought about what exactly it is that this Parsha, this chapter is saying, the clearer and clearer it becomes to me that this chapter does speak on that. And in reality, it doesn't stop in this Parsha, because these next two episodes, chapter 18 and chapter 19 of Genesis, they are connected. These two chapters of Genesis are connected in the same way that chapters 14 and 15 were connected, righteousness and faith. They provide two sides of the same coin, but now we're going to get two sides of righteousness compared and contrasted for us in these two stories. As so often happens when we discover similarity in the text of Scripture, we find that it's in the differences of those similarities that we find the keys of understanding what's being said. So let's read this Parsha, see what it has to say, and then discuss just what it contains for us as modern humans. Genesis 18 And Hashem appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, while he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked and saw three men standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, Adonai, if I have now found favor in your eyes, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And let me bring a piece of bread and refresh your hearts and then go on, for this is why you have come to your servant. And they said, Do as you have said. So Avam ran into the tent to Sarah and said, Hurry, make ready three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hurried to prepare it. And he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the trees as they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, See in the tent. And he said, I shall certainly return to you according to the time of life, and see Sarah, your wife, is to have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah was past the way of women. And Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my master being old too? And Hashem said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I truly have a child since I am old? Is any matter too hard for Hashem? At the appointed time, I am going to return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah is to have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. And the men rose up from there and looked toward Sodom, and Avraham went with them to send them away. And Hashem said, Shall I hide from Avraham what I am doing? Since Avraham is certainly going to become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, so that he commands his children and his household after him to guard the ways of Hashem, to do righteousness and justice, so that Hashem brings to Avraham what he has spoken to him. And Hashem said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Amorah is very great, and because their sin is very heavy, 
I am going down now to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I know. So the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Hashem still stood before Avraham. And Avraham drew near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wrong? Suppose there are fifty righteous within that city. Could you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to act in this way, to slay the righteous with the wrong, so that the righteous should be as the wrong. Far be it from you. Does the judge of all the earth not do right? And Hashem said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I shall spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Look, please, I, who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to Hashem. Suppose there are five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, If I find there forty-five, I do not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there are found forty. And he said, I would not do it for the sake of forty. And he said, Let not Hashem be displeased and let me speak. Suppose there are found thirty. And he said, I would not do it if I find thirty. And he said, Look, please, I have taken it upon myself to speak to Hashem. Suppose there are found twenty. And he said, I would not destroy it for the sake of twenty. And he said, Let not Hashem be displeased, and let me speak only this time. Suppose there are found ten. And he said, I would not destroy it for the sake of ten. Then Hashem went away as soon as he had ended speaking to Avraham, and Avraham returned to his place. In the last chapter, Avraham was given the sign of the covenant of circumcision, and he had his name changed. Why was it that Avraham had his name changed? Well, there's several possibilities that I've identified as to why this name change occurred. We talked about those last week. Number one, God wanted to give Abraham a new identity. Number two, he wanted to give him a way to think about his future as something new, not connected to his past, that new creation, that new person, that new identity. And number three, he wanted to confirm the promise that he had already made. Because Avram became Avraham. His name changed from exalted father to the father of many. And Sarai had her name changed from princess to princess of many. God told Abraham that he would have a child and that Sarah would be the mother of that child. And he gave the act of circumcision, the change in name, using both of these things as very purposeful signs in order to build Abraham's faith that the promise that God had given is still coming true and it's still future to him. That Ishmael episode, it's not going to prevent the promise. It will definitely introduce complications into the living out of that promise, but it's not going to prevent it. We need to, we need to liken this to a time when someone has given us a promise of something and then has taken time to give us what they promised. God acts in the same way. He makes a promise and then he takes time to bring about that promise. Or in other words, to fulfill the promise. God had promised Abraham that he would have a child and that Sarah would be the mother. And the thing is, is that Sarah was too old to have kids. She was unable to have kids when she was young. Now she's past the age where it's even a possibility. Abraham himself was 99 years old, which is a really old age for having kids, even in the time when they lived, uh, they lived long lifespans. I did the math on it, and it's like Abraham is 60 years old. That's, that's really old to be having kids. Abram and Sarah didn't understand how God could keep his promise. 
And that's the foundation for this chapter. They don't understand. How is God going to make this happen? I don't get it. He keeps telling us that it's going to come. He keeps telling us it's going to happen, but every possible means of it occurring has passed. How is this going to happen? And so at the beginning of this chapter, God comes and he visits Abraham. Now, the scripture here does not say that an angel of Hashem visited Abraham. It says literally that yod vav visited Abraham. And throughout chapter 18, the visitors are simply referred to as men. And we'll see that even in the next chapter as well, that that identification as men continues. If we continue on to chapter 18, those men were actually angels. So what is an angel according to the Bible? Well, in Hebrew, the word for angel is the same word as the word for messenger, malach. It's similar to melech, it's similar to malach, but there's a pause in it. It's malach, and it simply means messenger, one who goes to a, someone with a message. In the Greek, it's the word anglos, and it means the exact same thing, one who goes to someone with a message. In the times of scripture, in fact, before the 20th, 20th century, there was no internet. There were no phones. If you wanted to talk to someone, you had to go yourself in person, or you had to send someone with a message. Well, an angel is one way that God uses to communicate and to send messages to people. They are God's messengers. So the translators, the people who changed the Bible from its original language into our language so that we can understand what it says, decided to make a difference between messengers that are human. It would be similar to if I were to send a message to you, or if a king was to send a message to another king. It's a human messenger communicating with other humans. And messengers who were from God. Messengers or men who came from God to speak to people. And the translators decided to use that word anglos uh, to mean heavenly messenger. Well, these messengers, they come to Abraham and Sarah. And how does Abraham react? Well, he runs out to greet them. He gives them the best of what he has. This is called hospitality. It's caring for the needs of your guests. And in the ancient world, hospitality was one of the most righteous things that a person could do. Entertaining strangers or visitors was seen as the right and the best thing. And we'll talk more about hospitality next week. But for now, just be aware, the topic of hospitality is one of the ways that this chapter is connected to the next. Because both men in both chapters offer hospitality to these messengers. So after the messengers have been greeted and after they have eaten, the time comes to get down to business. And in verse 10, the man, the messenger, the Lord, Hashem, pronounces that Sarah will have a son by the following year. Let's think back to when we were kids. Did our parents make promises to us that we didn't believe that they could do? No, of course not. As a kid, when you're a child, when a promise is made by a parent, and obviously the promise is true. Obviously, it's going to happen. Mom and dad, they're all powerful in the beginning. But then as we got older, we discovered this thing called skepticism. And we began to become skeptical of people because we learned over time that people aren't necessarily faithful. They don't follow through when they make a promise. As we grow up, we discover that people will fail us. People make promises, they say they'll do things, and then they don't do them. But the question is, does God act in this way? Not at all. God always keeps his promises. 
even when they seem impossible to us. We learned through our own human interactions that people fail us. But don't let that change in you, your trust in God, when he says that God will do something into it. It's like Yeshua says in Luke 18 through 17, says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall certainly not enter into it. The kingdom of God, this earth in which there is no death or fighting or hunger or crying, it seems impossible to the adult mind, to the skeptical mind. But we, as people, we have to believe in the promises of God the same way as a child believes the promises of their parents in the beginning, before you learn the skepticism. How does Sarah respond to God's impossible promises? Obviously, she's skeptical. She doesn't believe God's promised this over and over again. All the time has passed. <laughs> really? I'm too old. I've been let down too many times to believe that this deepest desire could actually come true. And so she laughs at the promise of God. But how does God respond? Is anything too hard for Hashem? He responds with, where is your faith, Sarah? Yeah, you've been let down. You've been let down by people. Your husband once allowed you to be taken into another man's house. Your handmaid turned against you when she was able to have children and you were not. Your husband took your handmaid into his own bed. You've been let down by people, but most of all, by your own expectations and your own desires. You've wanted a child for yourself and for your husband, but at this point the possibility of that seems to be zero. You've looked at the world, you've looked at how it works, and it shows you that your desire is now impossible. You expected that if God were going to work, he would have done so by now. His response is in essence, you, Sarah, you are your own worst enemy. Because God has made a promise, and God's word is true and sure. What God speaks never goes away, it never changes. It's as sure as the earth that you stand on and the sky above your head, because how were those created? Through the word of God. So if those things are sure and solid and true, then all of the word of God is solid and true. Hebrews 4.12 says that God's word is alive and active. Psalm 119.105 says that the word of God will light your way. Isaiah 48 says that the word of God endures forever. Psalm 18, verse 30 says that the word of God is perfect and flawless. Matthew 24, 35 says that the word of God will never pass away. Psalm 33, 4 says the word of God is right and true and that he is faithful to his word. And John 1 tells us that the word of God took on flesh and it walked in our midst. Doubt everything that you have ever experienced, but do not doubt this one thing. Do not doubt the word of God. Sarah doubted the word of God, and she was rebuked for it. But the word stayed true. Her doubt did not influence God's word at all. So question is, have any of you ever heard God speak? I'm listening for an answer. Well, the answer for each and every one of us should be a resounding yes. We just heard God speak. This chapter was read aloud. You listened to it. I hope you listened to it. That word contained God's message. It contained his words translated into English. 
We just heard God speak through his word. And it was this word that took on flesh and walked in our midst. This word contains everything that God wants to say to mankind. If you have ever heard the Bible read aloud, or if you have read the Bible aloud, you have heard God's word. You have heard him speak, especially when you get in those places in the word where it says, and the Lord said. Those happen all throughout scripture, but they primarily happen in the, in the Torah, in books like Exodus and Leviticus. So God's word goes well beyond our, our own expectation and our own limits. But God doesn't limit himself to simply speech when he communicates. He communicates in many ways to man. And we've looked at one example already. He uses messengers, what we call angels. He sends someone with a message to someone else. He used an angel to speak to Samson's mother. He used an angel to speak to Mary, to Joseph, to Joshua, to Daniel, to Isaiah, and nearly every prophet. In Numbers 12, we read of another way, a way in which God speaks to man. Numbers 12, verse 6, and he said, Hear now my words. If your prophet is of Hashem, I make myself known to him in a vision, and I speak to him in a dream. God uses dreams and visions to reveal himself, and I would wager that he has spoken to many of you in this way as well. And that's vital and important to understand. God has not stopped speaking to mankind. Paul spoke of the gift of prophecy being active in the early church. And I don't believe those gifts of God to be dispensational, to be for a specific time and not for another. If they were brought to the earth and they were instituted, then they're for today. Joel 2.28 says this, And after this I shall pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters they shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Acts 2.17 echoes that passage as part of what Peter calls out that God was doing on earth at the time that the Holy Spirit fell on man in on Pentecost. Hebrews 1 says that God, having of old spoken in many portions and many ways to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by the Son, whom he appointed heir of all, and through whom he also he made the ages. So that brings up another base idea in this chapter. We use a lot of words in the church that we don't know the full meaning to. So what is prophecy? Because the word of God was spoken by the prophets, right? What is prophecy? Well, prophecy is not simply telling the future. That's what it's come to take on. It's come to take on this idea of predicting future events, being prophetic. But that's not what prophecy means in Scripture. There's an element of future telling in prophecy, but there's so much of prophecy that's actually about the past. It's about the present. It's not about the future. So what is prophecy? Well, if we examine it, a prophet is a human version of an angel. It's a messenger of God from a man's point of view to other men. A human who speaks the message of God that he gives him without changing it. We have an entire section of scripture called the prophets in the ancient Hebrew understanding. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the minor prophets are all considered prophetic books. But wait a minute, our Western culture tells us that a lot of these books are narrative and historical, books like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Exactly. Prophecy isn't just about telling the future. 
but it's also about accurately recounting the past as an example and as a warning for the future. It's faithfully speaking the message that God has given you without addition or subtraction. Prophecy isn't revelation of future events. Prophecy is revelation of what God is doing in the world right now. And we see this in verse 17. God asks this question. Should I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Not what I have done, not what I'm going to do, but rather what I am doing throughout the course of history from the ancient past to the distant future. Shall I reveal to him part of my plan? Why was Abraham accounted this honor of having God's plan revealed to him? We read in verse 18, I have made Abraham a promise that will surely come to pass. He will become a great nation, and the world will be blessed through him. Verse 19, Growing up, I took a lot of Bible courses, and some things stuck with me. And one of those things is when you see a therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. Well, this also applies to the words wherefore and simply for. This word connects the following thought as a next logical progression from the previous thought. It's, I have made this decision, and so now, after the four, I am going to, dis- to describe my reasons to why this thing is happening. So in verse 19, God's reason for choosing Abraham as the member of his plans, for I know that he will teach his children my commands, for I know that he will guard the ways of Hashem, for I know that he will do righteousness and justice. For I know that Abraham will model the image of God out into the world. And we've already talked about how Abraham was found faithful in God's sight. His righteousness was led by faith and it culminated in his action. But why was Abraham chosen? Because his faith wasn't simply a faith of intellect. His faith was one that he wore as a garment. His faith informed his every movement, thought, and action. He fully integrated his intellectual belief and his body together into a way of living life that spoke of his God. And so in verse 20 through 21, God reveals what he is doing on the earth. The cry of outrage against Sodom has reached its pinnacle, and they have reached the fullness of their sins, and the time to judge them has come. Immediately, the fullness of their sins that should clue us into something that we read before, back in Genesis 15. Why was it that it would be 400 years before Israel would be given the land of Canaan? In Genesis 15, 16, it says, Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the crookedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. This judgment of Sodom was spoken as a sign that the covenant that God had promised for the future would indeed come to pass. The way that it is steeped here gets us to realize God is going to wipe out the enemies of the righteous in an instant. He doesn't need the men to do it. And so when he uses the men to do it in the upcoming conquest of Canaan, it's not them that are doing it. They just get to be the brimstone and the sulfur that wipes the land clean. How can you know that I will judge the inhabitants of this land 400 years from now? Because you're going to witness me judge Sodom and Gomorrah now. Their sin has reached its fullness. The rest of Canaan, not quite yet. 
In some ways, this pronouncement was also a test of sort. Because what is it that Avraham immediately reminds God of? He immediately reminds God of his justice. Wait a minute, God, your justice is the kind of justice that will not allow you to simply destroy the righteous alongside the wrong. Why was it that God chose to reveal his plans to Avraham back in verse 19? Because he will do righteousness and justice in my image. And so now Avraham sees, wait, there, what God is doing here to Sodom, it's going to be something that's against his own righteousness and his justice. So surely, God, you won't judge someone so severely who doesn't deserve this level of punishment. What follows in the rest of the chapter, I have heard referred to with the phrase, Abraham negotiates with God. If we examine this story closely, we will see that it has absolutely nothing to do with negotiation. What does it mean to negotiate? A negotiation is when you want something that another has, and so you make a deal to trade something. So, for example, say that my daughter has a toy that my son wants to play with. Should my son just take that toy from her? No. He needs to offer something to her, something that she will want in exchange. So my daughter has a toy car. My son then finds her favorite doll and offers it in exchange. He has just negotiated a successful transfer. But wait a minute, my daughter doesn't just want a doll. She wants the doll, a book, and 30 minutes of my son's TV time to play a game. My son doesn't want to give all of that. And so he offers, well, will you just take the doll and the book? That's negotiation. That's haggling. Adults do this when we buy large items. And in most of the world, anytime you buy an item, you engage in negotiation and haggling. Is that what happens here in this chapter? Is that what's going on here? No, not at all. In this passage, Avraham is simply asking for mercy. And God says, okay. There's no haggling, no response, no counteroffer. Avraham says, suppose 50. Okay. Suppose 45. Okay. Suppose 40. Okay. And on and on down to 10. This is Avraham interceding on behalf of the righteous. And God gives him all that he asks for. There's something very profound in this that I think we need to grasp. God gives. He is a giving God. He wants the best for his children. And that applies even today. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, Because God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our master Yeshua, the Messiah. He hasn't appointed his children to wrath. The righteous are not appointed to wrath, but to salvation. When he pours out his judgment on mankind, he will create a way for the righteous to come out. We don't need to worry about suffering the wrath of God ourselves. God, in his justice, will not punish the righteous alongside the wicked. God will test his people, but that's another lesson for another day. Man will kill God's righteous, but that also is another lesson for another day. God himself will not pour out his wrath on the righteous. His justice prevents him from doing so. So let's add all of this up and see what we can pull from this. I spoke earlier of the prophetic books of Scripture, and we have discussed exactly what prophecy is. And too many, uh, too many times we tend to approach prophecy from one viewpoint or another. One, we view prophecy with trepidation and angst. We react in fear to what our minds conjure up as what is going to come to pass or what has passed. 
And many do this with the prophetic books and use the books to point out that God is angry and he's a judgmental God. And God of the Old Testament is not gracious, loving, kind, or compassion. That's simply not the case. Saying that is to completely skip over the thousands of times that God shows grace to the people who are being absolute jerks. But we see the same thing in the ancient prophets spoke of happening to Israel, echoed in Revelation. God's qualities are not either Old Testament or New Testament. They're rather, they're simply scriptural. So the second way that we tend to react to this type of prophecy of destruction is we react with it with joy. <laughs> Those wicked people out there, they're going to get what's coming to them. Our phrase, come Lord Jesus, come, is spoken while only thinking of our own personal escape from judgment, but not considering the tragedy that will befall billions of other people on the planet, including ourselves in that event. There is a third way to react to God's prophecies of judgment on the earth. And this is the way that Abraham models for us. Intercession. This third way is to say, God, I know you are righteous, and I know that you have to act in judgment. But, and it's in this but that we find the righteousness of Abraham in this chapter. But if there is any way, bring your righteous through it. In the example of Yeshua and Paul, we can add, add to the number of your righteous on the earth through this. It's Avram's natural reaction to intercede on the behalf of people, to intercede on behalf of the righteous, to seek mercy and righteousness. If there's even ten righteous in the city, God, spare them all. Spare all of the wicked for the sake of those few righteous. Can we say that we pray the same thing? God, spare the lives of those unholy, godless, sinful, and wicked people, those who rightly deserve justice. Why? Well, for the sake of your people, for the sake of those who are righteous. As I was writing these notes, I, I myself was met with a conviction because I don't pray this way. I was never taught to pray this way by men. I was taught to look out for myself, to look out for the righteous, but the wicked, they can all go to hell. In fact, they deserve hell. But it's God's mercy and its compassion that delays such judgment, that delays such action. It's his righteous judgment that prevents judgment on the earth for the sake of those few who might be saved. Do we ourselves, do we have that same mercy? Or would we rather just see it all burned down? Well, if you'd rather see it all burned down, read Amos 5. Amos 5, 18 through 20 says, Woe to you who are longing for the day of Hashem. Because what does the day of Hashem mean to you? It is darkness and not light. It says, When a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or he enters his house and rests his hand on the wall and then a serpent bites him, is not the day of Hashem darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? In Genesis 15, Abraham was promised that in 400 years, God would judge the people of Canaan and bring his offspring into the land. If Abraham was more like many of us, he would have said, well, just do it now. Who cares? They're not your people anyway. Why do you care so much about them, God? Just do it now. Come, Lord Jesus, wipe out these Canaanites and let's get on with it. Let's inherit this land. Bring me into what you have promised me, regardless of how it 
might destroy many to do so. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Perhaps we need to consider what it is that we mean when we say that. Do we mean come, Yeshua, into our presence? Come, Yeshua, into my life and cleanse me from my sin. Come, Yeshua, and kill my flesh and replace it with your heart and your mind. Come, Yeshua, and live in me so that I might bear your image out into the world. Because if that's what we mean, awesome. That's what it should mean. But if we mean come, Yeshua, and bring your kingdom in its fullness now so that I no longer have to suffer. Or come, Yeshua, and destroy my your enemies so that I can now live in comfort and peace. Or come, Yeshua, and leave the rest of the world to suffer the consequences of their sin as long as I get to escape. That is not what we need to mean when we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. This is a phrase we use so often when we see people being wicked. But you know what? The world hasn't yet reached the pinnacle of its wickedness. How do I know? Yeshua hasn't come. He's not here. Yet, one day, the pinnacle of wickedness that was Sodom and Gomorrah, the pinnacle of wickedness that was Babylon, the pinnacle of wickedness that was Canaan, when Israel began their conquest, our world as a whole will reach that pinnacle of wickedness. And when it does, then judgment will occur and not before. As long as that pinnacle has not been reached, we need to work to increase the righteousness of the people of the earth, to hold that day off, to stave it off just a little bit longer, just 10 more, God, just 10 more. And for the sake of those 10, wait. Please be patient with us, Father. We're doing our best to work in your image, to work in your light. We're doing our best to bring your kingdom here on earth. The wickedness of the world is not yet complete. There's hope, there's light, there's life out there in this world. So let's work. Let's spread it. And as it spreads, the enemy is going to seek to put out that light. And when that light goes out, then comes the day of Hashem, the day of darkness, the day without light. Because those who are caught in it will have extinguished the light in their midst. Until then, we work. We work towards interceding for the world, interceding for the righteous, not just the righteous that are now, but the righteous that might yet be. We have to seek their good. We need a heart for this lost and this broken world. When we're sinned against by anyone, we have to seek to intercede before the Father on their behalf. It doesn't matter who it is. It could be a friend. It could be a family. It could be a co-worker, an acquaintance. It could be an enemy. It could be a competitor. It could be an ex. It could be a government or anything else. We have to learn to seek their good. If we look to Isaiah 53 as a prophetic description of our Messiah, but we identify now that we are in Messiah, because 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, you are the body of Messiah and members individually. So if we are the body of Messiah, what happened to his body? He laid it down. It was destroyed on the cross. Isaiah 53 and the, all of the Gospels give us a gruesome picture of what 
happened to his body. And that is our call to arms. Not to seek God coming in his power and his glory to slay the oppressor, but rather to enter out into the world as Yeshua did and to lay down our lives for the good of the oppressor and the sinner, for the life of those who are currently in death. That's what he modeled. Too many times it feels as if we're simply trying to escape this world, to get out of here, take part of God's kingdom now. But that is not what our call is. That's our reward for being true when he calls. It is not our call. We cannot seek to gain the reward without living out that call. And that's what Abraham is modeling for us as well. His entire life is a model of living in the calling and then receiving the reward for that calling. What was the very first promise that God made to Abraham? I will bless the world through you. In Isaiah 49, 5-7 it says, And now said Hashem, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, though Israel is not gathered to him. Yet I am esteemed in the eyes of Hashem. My God has been my strength. And he said, Shall it be a small matter for you to be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved ones of Israel? And I shall give you as a light to the nations, to the Gentiles, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Thus says Hashem, the Redeemer of Israel, their Holy One, to the despised, to the loathed one of the Gentiles, to the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise. Rulers also shall bow themselves because of Hashem, who is steadfast, the Holy One of Israel, and He has chosen you. Each and every one of us is to be part of that promise to bless the earth, to gather in the people of Israel. In this chapter, we're told of the promised son of Isaac, and his name means laughter, the son through whom the world would be blessed. In Galatians 3.29, we read that if you are of Messiah, then you are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. We of faith, we of Messiah, we are the seed of that promise. If you are in Messiah, you are the seed. You are the fulfillment of this impossible promise to a world that is approaching death. And our job is to bless the world, not the world systems, but to bless the world, not curse it. Our call is to suffer on its behalf, not to seek to escape it. Our call is to live and to seek its peace and prosperity, not to tear it down. Our call is to bring life everywhere we go, not to wish death on those whom we identify as not worthy. The tearing down of this world, that's God's calling. That's his job. That is not our duty. It's our calling to build his kingdom here in the midst of this darkness, to shine as a light and a beacon of hope and redemption and restoration. And we can't do that if we're destroying everything we touch. Let's build and bless instead. Let's seek positive and not wish the negative. Because the negative is death. It's no movement. It's chaos. But positive is growth and energy and life. In the future, as we read prophecy, we'll read of the judgments that will befall mankind. 
And if your heart leaps in joy as you read of the destruction of the nations, stop and weep for yourself. There's very little joy to be found in the process, only heartache, destruction, and death. But these things must happen. But we should never seek or wish to see it happen. Our goal is to seek to build the kingdom of God. Instead, when we read of the terror, pain, heartache, and death and destruction of this world, perhaps we should stop and ask God, what's the role you would have me to play in this? Perhaps we should ask God, if there is even one more person that can enter your kingdom before the end, delay the coming of your kingdom for that one. Perhaps we should learn to pray, Father, have mercy on the wicked because of the righteous who are in their midst. And this chapter models that for us here very early in the story of history, what righteousness looks like, and it is not self-righteousness. It is a deep-seated heart for the broken and corrupt things of the world, not to seek their destruction, but to seek their redemption. Only after all else fails, only after every avenue of redemption and repair has been tried, only then will it be time to destroy all who will not allow themselves to change. The stubborn, the faithless, the wicked, the uncircumcised in heart. Only as a last resort, when all else has failed, only then, not before. The truth is that judgment will come to this world, just as judgment is heading towards Sodom in the story. But we, as the people of God, we are called to intercede, to pray for those who can still be redeemed, and that is our call. We don't get to judge them. God judges them. We have enough problems ourselves. 1 Corinthians 5, 12-13 For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are inside, but God judges those who are outside? And put away the wicked ones from among you. Each one of us is a person who has had God speak to us because we've heard his word. Each one of us is a seed of Abraham if you believe in him in faith. And God has revealed his plan and what he's doing in the world to each and every one of us. So how will we respond? My response is, God, please change my heart to match yours. Change my heart to match Abraham's, to intercede for the loss, to bless the world. Father, if there is ten people that can yet be saved, spare all of mankind for the sake of those ten. That should be our cry. That should be our prayer. Not come, Lord Jesus, come. Not destroy and rain your vengeance down upon the earth. It's something that'll happen, but there's no light in that. It is a day of darkness and destruction and death. It's a day of sadness and horror and terror. The people of God should have nothing to do with that. That's on God. Let us live as light as life, as kindness. Let us live in the fruit of the Spirit, as I talked about last week. Patience, kindness, self-control. Those are the things that we need to model. We need to seek to bless the world, and we need, we need 
to ask God to prevent his judgment as long as there are any who might still be redeemed until the fullness of sin is reached. Only when the fullness of sin is reached, then come back, Lord. Then have your way. That's my heart cry. I pray that it becomes yours as well. As we go through this coming week, Shavuot is upon us. It's right there around the corner. Let's uh, let's think about that because Shavuot, Pentecost, it is a day of the nations coming into God. It's a day of redemption and rejoicing and joining together Jew and Gentile into the covenant with the Father and no longer being Jew and Gentile but becoming Israel. Let's pray, Father, please, add to your number on that day. Increase us. And if there are even ten that can be saved, Father, delay judgment. Delay it for the sake of those ten. Living in life is not easy. It's, it's the difficult path. It's the hard path. It's the narrow path. Living in life is the opposite of what we want to do. It's the opposite of our nature. Our nature is death. But let's seek to find the life in the situations that are in front of us. Let's look to Avraham's example here of intercession, pleading. God revealed his word to him. He revealed what he was doing in the earth. And Avraham's response was, Even in this, Father, please act in justice and righteousness. Even in this. Provide a way, a means of escape for your people. And in that, we find the path of life. We see what it means to live for the kingdom of God. To bring life to the world. To not wish destruction and death upon others. But to wish their good. To seek life within them. To seek the growth of life in the world. Oh. As you think on this, as you ponder this, I pray that you will continue to view life through the lens of life. Stop viewing it through that good versus evil paradigm that shifts, that scale, that's constantly moving. The scale of life is solid. It's difficult. It's hard. But it doesn't shift. There's life, and all else is death. Simply having blood running through your veins isn't life. Simply drawing breath isn't life. So let's consider that as we derash chai, as we go through this new week and we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derash Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we derash chai, as we seek life. Shalom.